Today I want to talk to you about hell's headquarters. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This morning we continue our seven-part sermon series examining the seven letters of the seven churches as recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This morning I want us to talk about living in hell's headquarters. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. To the angel at the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pergamum was an important city. It was located about 100 miles north of Ephesus, 15 miles inland. For many years, it was the capital of Asia Minor. Not only was it an important city, but it was also a very intellectual city. For Pergamum boasted a library that had in excess of 200,000 works. It was only outpaced by the library in Alexandria. Not only was this city an important city and an intellectual city, it was also an idolatrous city. The altar to Zeus was located in Pergamum. It was labeled as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its splendor and glory rivaled that of the pyramids in Egypt, the hanging gardens of Babylon. This was a city that not only housed the altar to Zeus, but Pergamum was the first city to construct a temple to a living emperor. It wasn't uncommon for cities to build a temple to a, a, a pagan dead emperor, one who had been in history years and years ago. But Pergamum was the first city to build a temple to the existing Roman emperor. I think because of these reasons, Jesus labels the city of Pergamum as the place where Satan dwells. A place where Satan lives. It's hell's headquarters. And wouldn't you know it? Right in the middle of hell's headquarters, God planted a church. Sounds like God, doesn't it? Putting a church in the most unlikely of places. If that communicates anything, it communicates that Jesus has jurisdiction over every area on the planet. There's no place where he is out of bounds. He's in bounds everywhere he is, for he has rule and authority even in hell's headquarters. Jesus is identified as the one who holds the sharp double-edged sword. 
When you hear those words of Christ, your mind automatically goes back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. It's there where John describes Jesus, and he says that Jesus is portrayed as having a sharp double-edged sword dangling out of his mouth, for it is the very word of God. Everything Jesus speaks is the authoritative word of our Lord. It also reminds you of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It can divide uh, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It even can, can lay bare the very thoughts of a man's heart. But one thing you may not realize is that in the city of Pergamum, the city that was drenched in the worship of Caesar, the leading Roman ruler in Pergamum had a sovereign symbol that sovereign symbol was his sign. That sovereign symbol which served as his sign was his emblem wherever he went. And wouldn't you know that that Roman governor had the sword as his emblem. So everywhere that people of Pergamum saw the sword, they realized that that's where the Roman government was. That's where the governor was. That's where the leading Roman official in that province resided. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that ultimate authority does not reside in the government, it resides in God. Now that's a good word for every generation of any culture. For everyone to realize that ultimate authority does not reside in a government, but ultimate authority resides in Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the only one who can accurately wield the sharp double-edged sword, for he is the one who is the author of and, the, and the fulfiller of all of Scripture. Jesus says, I am the one who holds the sharp double-edged sword. He says, I know a few things about you. And as we've taught before, for Jesus to know, it means he knows exhaustively and entirely. It's not that he just has a working knowledge of what's going on in your life, but he has a thorough knowledge of what's going on. He says, I know where you are planted. I know your persecution and I know your perseverance. I know where you're planted, Jesus says. Jesus said to the church at Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, normally, when somebody tells you, I know where you live, that carries a negative connotation. Watch out, boy, I know where you live. Normally, that carries a negative feeling, but not in this case. It's a very comforting thought for Jesus to say, I know where you live. It's not off limits to me. It's not that Jesus doesn't know where he's plopped you. It's not that he doesn't know where he's planted you. He knows exactly where he's placed you. Jesus says to the church, I know where you live. And Jesus knows not only the state and the zip code and the address and the street and the subdivision and the neighborhood and the surroundings. He knows everything. He says, I know where you live. For there's no place that's off limits to me. I know where I plopped you. I know where I planted you. I know what you're going through. I know what you're experiencing. I know where you live. Friend, has there ever been a moment when you have questioned God saying, God, do you know who I am and where I am? Do you know what I'm going through? 
Do you know what the doctors have told me? Do you know the family strife that I feel? Do you know what's going on in the marriage? Do you know about the unemployment? Do you know about this or that? Lord, do you know who I am and where I am? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever voiced it unto the Lord? Has there ever been a part of your walk with Christ where you've wondered, God, are you an absent-minded professor? Do you not know where you last placed me? Do you not know where you plot me? Here I am living in hell's headquarters. And God, do you even know? And God, God reminds the church, I know where you live. I know everything that you're going through. I know everything that keeps you up at night. I know everything that takes up residence in the pit of your stomach. I know everything that worries you. I know everything that you're experiencing. I know where you reside. I know where you live. He goes on and says, I know about your perseverance. For you do not renounce my name. You do not Renounce my faith. Jesus tells the church, you remain true to me. That word remain is present tense. It means that the church not only remained true to Christ in days gone past in a galaxy far, far away, but they're remaining true to him in the here and now. And the implication is it's continuous action, so it will continue in days to come. You remain true to me, and you have not renounced your faith in me. Literally, the text reads, you have not renounced my faith. Now, most of our translations try to smooth it out for us. If yours is anything like the New International Version, it smooths it out by saying, you have not renounced your faith in me, and certainly it can be understood that way. But literally, the text reads, you have not renounced my faith. And I wonder, in our translation, have we missed something? Have we missed something that is so simple, yet so subtle, yet so significant? For you do realize that the faith that you possess, the faith that possesses you, is a gift from God. You have his faith. He planted his faith inside of you. Oh, yes, you had to willfully respond. Yes, you had to voluntarily respond in faith. But the faith that you have, the faith that guides you, the faith that keeps you, it is a gift from God Almighty. So what Jesus is saying to the church is you have persevered in my faith, for my faith has been planted inside of you. And when things come along and squeeze you, whatever's on the inside will come out. And what's been coming out is my faith. Because you do understand that when life gets tough and rough, when there's trial and tragedy, when there's suffering and sickness, when you feel squeezed by the world, whatever's on the inside of you will come out. So if godliness is inside of you, then godliness will come out. If bitterness is inside of you, then bitterness will come out. If greed is inside of you, then greed will come out. If selfishness is inside of you, then selfishness will come out. All you have to do is just look at what you produce when life squeezes you. And here to the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you live and I know your perseverance. For when you have been squeezed by the world, my faith has been coming out of you. The faith that I have planted inside of you, I am now pulling out of you. He says, I, I know. I know where you are. I know about your perseverance. He even says, I know about the persecution. For even in the days of Antipas, you did not renounce your faith in me. This is the first martyr that's listed in the book of Revelation. We don't know much about Antipas. In fact, 
All Jesus has to say is just his first name. And everybody goes, oh, yes, we remember well. We remember Antipas, who was put to death because of faith, extraordinary faith in Jesus Christ. How did Jesus describe this guy? My faithful witness. What a great eulogy. When your death day comes, when my death day comes, and I am laid out in a casket and some preacher stands up, I hope and pray that he will be able to stand up and say, here lies one who is a faithful witness of Christ. I don't care anything else that's said. If that's the epitaph, then that's enough. A faithful witness for Christ. This is how Jesus regards Antipas. You and I have talked before that the word witness is the Greek word martyr. In fact, the English word martyr is a transliteration of the exact Greek word. To, to be a martyr is to be a witness. To be a witness is to be a martyr. So what Jesus is describing is that this guy named Antipas was a faithful martyr unto Christ. For all of his life, till death took every last breath out of him, he was declaring a faithful witness unto the Lord. History says that Antipas was roasted to death in the belly of a bronze bull. You and I would call it a furnace. He was set ablaze. He was set on fire. It was an excruciating way to die. And all the while, he could have renounced his faith in Christ. All the while, the various leaders could have said, now, if you renounce your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't be thrown into the belly of this bronze bull. And Antipas said, on my dead body, I am going to declare Jesus is Lord. Jesus says, I know. I know where you're planted. I, I know your perseverance. I even know the persecution that's going on around you. Now, if that's all of the report card, then this church gets flying colors, don't they? High marks. I mean, this sounds like a church that's got it going on. I mean, this church is in a tough place, in a tough town, yet they're doing some good ministry. They're right there in hell's headquarters where Satan has his throne, yet they have not renounced faith in Christ. They have not turned in the towel. They have not waved the white flag. They have not uh, uh, been disloyal unto the Lord. In fact, Jesus says, you remain true unto me. This sounds like high marks, doesn't it? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, Jesus says. There's some people in the faith family who hold to the teaching of Balaam. There's some people in that local church that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. What does Jesus mean when he says that there are some even in your midst that are holding to the teaching of Balaam? Balaam's story is told for us in Numbers chapters 22 to 25. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet for hire. He was on the payroll of Balak, king of Moab. The reason he was on the payroll of Balak, king of Moab, was because Balak understood that wherever the Israelites went, they pretty much would overtake and evict whoever was living in that land. As they came out of Egypt, as they made their way to the promised land, they overwhelmed the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the other ites. And lo and behold, when Balak looked up one morning, he looked out of his window, and who were his new neighbors? The Israelites. They had come and camped right there beside Moab, and he was a little bit uncomfortable. 
He was a little bit on edge. He was a little bit unnerved because he knew the story. He had read all the newspapers. He knew that every place Israel went, God was before them and God would annihilate whoever was living there, evict them out of the land. And Balak said, as king of Moab, I've got to do something. So he hired that false prophet Balaam. He said, Balaam, I need you to call down curses upon the Israelites. They negotiated a contract. It was agreeable. Everybody signed on the dotted line and Balaam went out to do his job. He went out to call down curses upon God's people, the Israelites. Every time he opened his mouth, God stepped in and confused his language. He attempted to speak a curse, but God transformed it into a blessing. This happened not once, but twice, but three times. On three occasions, Balaam tries to the best of his ability to speak a curse against the Israelites and God confounds his language and he he ends up speaking a blessing. Now, doesn't that sound like God? God's in the business of reversing the curse. God's in the business of what the world says is a curse. He transforms it into a blessing. That's simply who our God is. And Balaam says, I don't understand this. I usually can call down a curse whenever I want to, but for some reason, I, I try to speak and what comes out of my mouth is not a curse, but a blessing. He goes back to Balak, king of Moab, and he says, sir, I am sorry, but I failed you. Every time I open my mouth, I can't speak a curse. Only a blessing comes out. And Balak said, well, that's just wonderful. What am I going to do now? And Balaam, the false prophet, said, well, if you can't curse them, you may want to corrupt them. Well, how do you do that? Balak asked. Balaam, the false prophet, said, well, you could take some of those bodacious Moabite women and you could uh, let them go into the camp of Israel and see if they could entice some of those men into idolatry and adultery. If you can't curse them, you may be able to corrupt them. So Balak sent out all the single ladies, all the single ladies, and they were dancing to the tune of Beyonce. And they went into the camp of the Israelites. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, those Israelite men fell prey. They indulged not only in idolatry, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, bowing the knee to the Moabite pagan gods and goddesses, but they also indulged in adultery. They did things that were forbidden from the Lord. Jesus says, not only do some of you hold to the teachings of Balaam, but also to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. This is not the first time we've come across that term, Nicolaitans, in our study of the seven letters to the seven churches. No, we read of it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, in the very first letter that Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus. It is there where Jesus says to the Ephesian church, you despise the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were people of the present day, who thought they could be Christians, followers of Christ, and still have multiple sexual partners. They thought they could indulge in revelry. They thought they could embark in idolatry and adultery, and it would still be okay. They could do whatever they wanted to do throughout the week and then come to church on Sunday, get their worship on, ask for forgiveness, and all would be well. And then they'd start a brand new week and indulge in the same things they did last week. This was the practices of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, you got a lot of things going for you. 
I know you're in a tough place. You're in hell's headquarters. I know your perseverance. You have good doctrine. You have not surrendered. You have not waved the white flag. I know even the persecution doesn't even cause you to renounce my name. But I do have an indictment. What is the indictment that Jesus levels against the church at Pergamum? He commends them for their victory over external strife. But he indicts them because of their inward moral decay. They had compartmentalized their life. The external strife and struggle, they were victorious. Everything outside the church, they were good at. They could stand up for the Lord. They could uh, uh, wage war in the marketplace. They knew uh, the doctrines. They knew the beliefs. They, they did not renounce faith. They stood up for the Lord, even if it meant death. External strife was nothing for them. But their problem was their internal decay. They did not make purity a priority. And apparently, this is a big deal to Jesus. Please hear this. They did not make purity a priority. And this is a huge deal to Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Without purity, you cannot see the Lord. And the indictment is that these people had not made purity a priority. So really they were not purely seeing the Lord himself, the resurrected Christ. They saw some version, some haze of him, some image of him, but not the real resurrected Christ. And they were diminished in their obedience and even their effectiveness in the gospel ministry. You know, this is not the first time that you and I've had to talk about this. In recent weeks, as we've studied the Ephesian letter, this topic has come up about sexual immorality. And I remember a few weeks ago when we talked about that from Ephesians 5, I, I made the comment that uh, what would it look like if the early church had the internet? I mean, how despicable, how vile would they be? What would they be doing with the internet in the first century if they actually had it? And the answer I think we know exactly what they'd be doing with it. The same thing that the church of the 21st century is doing with it. So that even today, one out of every two self-professing religious men, one out of every five self-professing religious women, approximately four out of every ten pastors at some point are engaged in pornography, sexual immorality, adultery, inappropriate relationships. The, the, the vice that was evident in the church at Pergamum is still evident in the church of the 21st century today. What Jesus levels against them, he just might level against us today, for we have not made purity a priority in our life. It seems that consistent all throughout the Bible that Jesus has one sexual ethic. And the one sexual ethic is this, that it is one man and one woman in one flesh for one life. That's the model that he gives consistently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That when it comes to, to uh, sexual morality, the, the, the proper equation is one man and one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. Any deviant, deviation of that is off limits unto the Lord. So multiple sexual partners out of bounds. 
Any other version of a man, a woman, husband, wife, out of bounds. So premarital sex, um, postmarital sex, intermarital sex, sex after your first marriage, but before your second marriage, off limits. Because the sexual ethic of the Lord is consistent all throughout the Bible. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. It's consistent all throughout. And it seems that this is a big deal with Jesus. So Jesus does have something to say to the highly adulterous culture of America. And Jesus does have something to say to the homosexual community. And Jesus does have something to say to those caught in the web of pornography. And Jesus has something to say to all of us. Because Jesus is clearly, consistently communicating the only sexual ethic that is honorable in the sight of God. The indictment against this church at Pergamum is that they had failed to make purity a priority. If you and I can just step up one rung of the ladder of application, okay? If we can just step up one rung of the ladder, we can say not only did they fail to make purity a priority, but we can also say in an even greater way that their commitment to Christ had become only when it was convenient. They were choking on convenient Christianity. They were committed unto the Lord when it was convenient for them. They were committed unto Christ when nobody else was, uh, no, nothing better was coming along. They were committed unto Christ when it would advance their cause, their reputation, um, uh, their agenda. They were committed unto Christ when it was convenient for them. But when no one was watching, when the lights were turned off, when uh, no one was paying attention, they were not committed unto the Lord. Their problem is that they had compartmentalized their life. They said, we want to major on doctrine, but not so much on ethics. We want to know what God says for us to do, but not necessarily how it's going to impact how we live every day of the week and twice on Sunday, what we do when people are watching, what we do when no one's watching. They compartmentalized their life. And what the people of Pergamum, the, the church of Pergamum had done, I think is so rampant, even in the church of the 21st century. We compartmentalize our commitment unto the Lord. So we major on some things, we minor on other things. And we impose what we major on to other people on those things that we succeed at. But those minor things, those things that we fail at, all, we just regard that as something we just sweep under the carpet. It's not that big of a deal. And Jesus comes along and says, um, your doctrine impacts your daily life. What you believe impacts how you behave. And he indicts the church at Pergamum because they were only convenient Christians. They, they had not made purity a priority in their life. I think we can uh, look at this text, and, and, and I realize this, this text really has, has nothing to do with... Uh, with our commitment unto the church or, or church attendance. But I can, I, can, I can well imagine that there were times that the people at Pergamum, they were committed unto the Lord. They probably came on Easter Sunday. And then maybe the next Sunday, maybe they weren't all there at church. 
You know, I, I think some of us even struggle with that, don't we? When it comes to our commitment unto this local body, we're committed to Christ so long as, as there's not something else to do. <laughs> we're committed to, to this local congregation so long as, as there's not a vacation or some travel team or, or hiking or camping or shopping or work or this or that. I mean, we're committed as long as it's convenient. But the moment something else comes along, well, Jesus will understand. We'll just do something else, indulge in something else. I can remember um, the most extreme example of this. It's a conversation that took place over 20 years ago, and yet I still remember it. I can remember uh, Jane Ellen and I were engaged, uh, uh, engaging a couple in conversation there at the church where I was serving. And uh, th this, this couple that we were talking to, they had children. Uh, they were small children, probably elementary age children. And we just randomly made the comment, hey, we missed you guys last Sunday. And I'll never forget the husband's response. He looked at me and he said, well, it was raining. And, and I kind of did a double test. I said, what? what? He said, well, it was raining and, and we don't like to get our kids out in the rain. And I thought to myself, do your kids go to school when it's raining? Do they go to grandma's house when it's raining? Do you go on a trip when it's raining? Yeah, probably so. But... As a spiritual leader, he had decided, you know what, I don't think it's a good idea for us to get our kids out in the rain because they may catch a cold. And so we're not going to go to church today because it's raining. I thought to myself, you could come up with a better excuse than that, big boy, <laughs> right? But I'll never forget that. That's one of the most extreme cases in conversation I've ever had. And it was over 20 years ago, and I still remember it because he simply said, it's, it's raining. The indictment that Jesus levels against the church, yes, is that they had not made purity a priority. And I think part of that reason was because they had compartmentalized their Christianity and they were convenient. They were committed unto Christ only when it was convenient. So what does Jesus say? Jesus tells them to repent. To repent means to do a 180. Literally what Jesus is saying is turn your back on your sin. You've got to turn your back on your sin, whatever the sin is. Whatever it is, you've got to turn your back on your sin. Literally, you've got to turn around, do a 180. You've got to turn your back on your sin and say, you know what? I'm not going to side saddle my sin. I'm not going to embrace my sin. I'm not going to excuse my sin. I'm going to turn my back on my sin and turn towards the glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you don't repent, then I will come against you with my word. I'll come against you with that sharp double-edged sword. For the word of God comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. And Jesus says, I will come against you with my word. So repent. The only remedy that Jesus offers in any of these seven letters is repentance. That's the only remedy that he, that he gives. That's the only one needed. That's the only one he declares. He says, as my people, you must turn your back on your sin. Whatever your sin is, you got to turn your back on it. you got to turn towards the glorious Savior. He gives two rewards for repentance. He says, to him who repents, to the one who overcomes, I'll give some hidden manna. What is that? Well, I think that's a reference to the manna that was kept in a jar in the Ark of the Covenant. It reminded the people of God how their forefathers had been wandering in the wilderness and God provided all that they needed, provided bread from heaven, 
so they would not starve to death. Jesus says in John chapter 6, your forefathers ate bread in the wilderness and yet they still died. But I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. He who comes to me and feasts on me by faith will never die. You will be with Christ both now and forevermore. What Jesus is telling the church is one of the rewards of repentance is that you'll be able to feast on Christ both now and forevermore. You will have the hidden manna. You'll have Jesus himself in your life. But he also says, I will give you a white stone with a name on it. Now, there's some debate on what he means by this. The most likely thing that he means is that whenever an athlete was victorious in a race, that athlete was given a white stone. That white stone was a ticket to the winner's banquet. Only those who had white stones were allowed access into the winner's banquet. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the ticket to the party. He's saying, I'm your escort into eternity. I am your guide into glory. I am your white stone. If you have me in your life, then you'll be gained. You'll be given access into God's heaven. But if you don't have me in your life, you'll be denied access into God's heaven. And the way you get Jesus in your life is through repentance. If you repent, turn your back on your sin, turn toward the glorious Savior. Jesus says, I'll give you myself hidden manna, and I'll give you myself a white stone, and I will be your ticket into the party for all of eternity. He also says that on that white stone, there'll be a name, a name that is recognized to the one who receives it. What does he mean by that? Well, he could mean his own name, Jesus, because when we look down, we realize that we've been transformed because of him. It's not because of us, it's because of him. It is his name that glorifies, uh, uh, that helps to, us to glorify him. It is his name that gives us redemption and forgiveness of sin. It is his name that gives us access to God. It is his name that guides us into glory. And so some people have said that Jesus is saying that you look down on the white stone and my name is engraved upon it because my name has been engraved upon your life. And so others have said, that maybe it's not the name Jesus. Maybe it's something so personal. Maybe it's something that Jesus has done for you, how he's transformed your life. Because all throughout the Bible, the Lord would change someone's name and a name carried essence and character. So when God did a mighty work in somebody's life, many times their name was changed. Abram was changed to Abraham. Sarai changed to Sarah. Jacob was changed to Israel. Saul was changed to Paul. And maybe, maybe God has so transformed your life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's turned your life inside out, upside down, that you look down and you realize, you know what? I was a failure, but now I'm forgiven. I was a loser, but now I am loved by God. I was helpless, but now I'm holy. I was a pervert, but now I'm precious in his I was ruthless, but now I'm redeemed. I was a victim, but now I'm victorious. I was a sinner, but now I am sanctified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, listen, when you repent, I'll transform you from the inside out and I'll escort you into eternity. So my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the other living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And then he died for me. So what is Jesus telling the church at Pergamum to do? How do you live 
in hell's headquarters? How do you navigate life where Satan has his throne? What do you do when there's so many circumstances around you that are hellacious in every sense of the word? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Fix your gaze upon Christ. When he reveals sin in your life, repent. Turn your back on sin. Turn toward the glorious Savior. And when you repent, he will be your bread of life. He'll sustain you both now and forevermore. And he will give you himself the ticket into eternity. And you look down and you'll see he has changed me. He has transformed me. We've said before on numerous occasions, and we'll say it to the Lord takes us home. We may not be all that we ought to be, but I look down. Praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Because God has transformed me. And look, God has transformed you. To God be the glory. How do you live life in hell's headquarters? Fix your gaze upon Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we give you this invitation. And Lord, some people here listening to my voice, they, they know what it is to live in hell's headquarters. They know what it is to be so overwhelmed with struggle and strife. And there are people listening to my voice and, and they know what it is to hold to the teaching of Balaam and to hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There are people who know what it is to be so inconsistent in our walk. And so, Lord, today you have revealed sin in various forms. Help us this day to repent, to turn our back on that. And, Lord, then to realize that you are transforming us from the inside out. So, God, please have your way in this invitation. Do something that we cannot humanly explain. In Jesus' name, amen.